Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast, brought to you from the team behind Cycling Plus, MBUK and BikeRadar.com. Hi there, welcome to the Bike Radar podcast. I'm Tom Marvin, technical editor here at Bike Radar. And on this episode of the podcast, we're bringing back the tech Q&As with uh, Rob and Warren. So Rob is our senior technical editor-in-chief um, and Warren is our senior row technical editor. Um, so we thought we'd bring these two titans of tech knowledge to the podcast uh, back again. And we popped onto Instagram um, and asked our Instagram followers if they had any tech questions for Rob and Warren. And lo and behold, we've got 10 or 11 questions to get through today. So we're going to rattle through them, hopefully fairly fast, covering both road and mountain bike topics. Very good. All right, well, we'll crack straight into the questions because we've got quite a lot to get through. So question number one, I think this is really um, a road-based question, but I'm sure uh, Rob can chip in too with a bit of mountain bike knowledge in there. Um, But will we see new top-level mechanical group sets? Obviously, SRAM and Shimano are both pushing fairly heavily, certainly on the road, um, DI2 and access, and on the mountain bikes, access, but maybe not so much DI2. So Warren, are we going to see any more top-level mechanical group sets coming out? Um, I mean, when you're talking road, I mean, obviously there's there's access from SRAM, there's DI2 from Shimano, and don't forget EPS from Campagnolo as well. And if you look at, especially the Pro Tour, you won't really see riders using anything but electronic. Um the advantages are there, you know, it's the it's the ease of maintenance, it's the accuracy and the continuing accuracy of it, and it's not as affected by weather as cables, etc. So um, in all honesty, and this is just my opinion, I think, no, I think we've seen the end of the Bowden cable. Okay. And what about um, on the mountain bikes, Rob? Obviously, access is a big thing, and, and SRAM are pushing it a lot lower down to, well, GX access now. On the Shimano side of things, DI2 came out with XTR and XT, but it never dropped below that. And the latest drop of XTR new stuff didn't include DI2, really, did it? So, Yeah, I mean, I think there's still some um, reluctance by a lot of uh, mountain bikers to fully embrace the electronic stuff. Not only is it a massive outlay initially, but I think people are still worried that, you know, if they prang a mech or break a shifter, it's going to cost a lot of money. And, and you know, those things happen all the time in mountain biking. So I sort of understand why maybe there is a little bit of reluctance there. Um, so I guess, yeah, different to on the roadside where I think generally speaking, when we see um, new group sets coming out, I think more than likely we're going to see both. Um, From we have Shimano? Yeah, I think, I think both are going to, I think both SRAM and Shimano will continue to do cable operated stuff and working on the, uh, well, you know, uh, wireless or cabled electronic stuff. Um, we haven't seen anything new from Shimano with that uh, it, with that in mind for quite a while. Like you said, uh, XTR and XT came out in DI2, but maybe we'll do a refresh soon. So, Obviously, they've done sort of that semi-wireless thing on the road with the new Dura-Ace. So, yeah, I'd say maybe we'll see something. I think we will, more than likely. I, I think... Um, they're obviously um, conscious of what SRAM are doing uh, and how popular it's been. I wouldn't say it's going to overtake mechanical just yet, but we are seeing it now. There's you know GX available. We are seeing a lot more bikes. Cool. Well, so probably not from road, maybe from mountain bike for at least a few more years. All right. 
Well, let's do uh, the next question we had in was, what's the best mountain bike cost benefit from someone uh, with a mid-level bike? So we've taken this as, you know, like what are the what are the things to spend your cash on? Um, if you say you've got like a 1500, two grand bike, where's best to spend some cash? Now, I know, Rob, you've got a lot of things that can be done, but what are some of the key ones? Well, I would say um, the bike aside, coaching is always going to be, that would trump any perf- like product performance you can drop your cash on so whether that's within a group when you're going to spend about 100 quid for a day or about 250 quid for some one-on-one stuff for a full day that is yes for a full day um sounds like a lot of money but the takeaways can potentially outweigh anything you you know any bit of tech you could spend your cash on um if we're going specifically for the bike i think tires make a massive massive difference so it's down to sort of personal preference, obviously, um, what you want in terms of, you know, what sort of riding you're doing. So whether that's um, you're putting in the miles, so you're going to want a lighter weight tyre that rolls quicker, or whether you're more, you know, into aggressive trail riding, Jura racing, downhill riding, where it's more about traction and how tough those tyres are. Um, so, I mean, I guess, you know, Tires aren't cheap. Um, so you just need to, I guess, try and weigh up all of those things. Speak to your friends if they're a bit more experienced as they'll be able to give you advice as to, you know, what they think works, what doesn't. But obviously, if you're looking for a balance, it's a case of trying to um, trying to consider a few things with regards to compounds. So obviously, a tackier compound will give a more damped feel. Um, it will also add traction but it's also going to roll more slowly and more than likely wear much more quickly whereas a harder compound rolls faster but it generally lasts a bit longer you're not going to get the same levels of traction so there's most brands have something sort of at either end of the scale and then a few different options in between and and we'll come on to a lot more you know we've got a question question about casing later but also there's that to consider and so again that's I would say more down to what sort of stuff you're riding. You know, you're not going to take the lightest um, Maxxis or Schwalbe casing and go and try and stick it on your downhill bike and race downhill because you're going to tear it to shreds within seconds. Equally, you're not going to take a downhill tyre or downhill casing tyre and try and race a a cross-country race on it because you're going to be exhausted. Yeah. I think the, the takeaway from that is asking mates maybe who are a bit more experienced, see what they're riding. And, you know, we've said it a lot in the podcast if you've got a bit of cash to spend on your bike, the tire is probably one of the best places on the bike to spend it. And, you know, it's worth spending getting that top end, top end tires. Definitely. And, and also then there's other things to consider as well, like, um, getting your suspension tuned. So not just service, but if you speak to the right, um, suspension tuning company, uh, they'll take things on board, like your riding style, potentially come out with you and film you. So they can kind of see what you're doing on the bike. They might be able to offer some setup tips stuff like that and then it will be tuned specifically for you and i think most people that have that done from stock will tell you that it's a huge leap in performance it might just be all of a sudden they feel like they're gaining more traction or where previously they might have been feeling that the bike was really blowing through its travel or bottoming out really harshly all of a sudden it's not doing that um so i, I genuinely think that's a that's a massive plus um and it doesn't cost the earth either um 
and there's plenty of it seems like there's even more and more suspension tuning companies cropping up so there's plenty out there to choose from a really easy win i think is looking at your grips aside from your pedals is the only other point you're you know physically in contact with the bike well okay saddle as well but you're up and out of the saddle quite a bit but hopefully you're never really letting go of your bars <laughs> unless things are going horribly <laughs> wrong no handers i don't know <laughs> but um you know i think one of the common questions we used to get on mbuk especially was you know how can we prevent arm pump things like that and it might be that you've got a stock bike totally standard you've never changed anything on it um and the company that you bought it from has stuck some really fat really wide diameter grips on there and if like me you've got quite small hands trying to grip a wide diameter grip makes your ha- arms tired it's it's way more exhausting than you might think so just swap into a thinner diameter or a different compound rubber there's if you go on the sites like Renthor. Uh, DMR, they'll list all the different types of um, compounds they offer. Um, and so you can pick from those. You know, obviously, just like with tyres, you know, softer rubber is going to be tacky, but it's going to wear out quicker. But I think they make a, a massive difference on the bike. If you, you know, whether that's trying to combat arm pump, whether that's for comfort on all day rides, because obviously you can get the foam grips as well, which I know I think a lot of, you know, high mileage cross country marathon riders tend to opt for. You know, the only downside with those is you glue them onto your bars, which is a bit more of a pain. But again, not a massive outlay and I think a, a big benefit. Wicked. Then, of course, pedals and shoes. Now, I could do a whole <laughs> podcast on pedals and shoes. Um, but again, it's it's very subjective, all down to the type of riding you're looking to do. Obviously, you've got the two main options, clipless or flat. Um, and then it's a case of making sure you're pairing the right pair of shoes with the right pair of pedals. So like a, a cross-country rider might want a stiffer shoe, but with a smaller pedal, whereas if you're riding more trails, more aggressively stuff, you, you might want a softer, more feely shoe with a wider platform pedal to, or a bigger platform pedal to give you the support. Yeah, so the shoe potentially, in that example there, the shoe's going to maybe flex a little more, which is what's going to enable you to have a bit more feel through the bike. Equally, you know, on a cross-country shoe, you want it to be as efficient as possible so you're going to have you know a much stiffer maybe even a carbon sole shoe um and the difference between the two as well you're going to have different uppers different widths you're going to um you know one's going to probably dry quicker than the other you're also going to have different range of um cleat adjustment as well so normally on a more gravity focused type of shoe you're able to move the cleat further back um to the middle of the foot which is Generally speaking, when you're running downhill, you feel less tired because you're not stood on your toes. It kind of feels like you're stood on your tiptoes in some of those cross-country shoes, I think. Um, And then, yeah, in terms of flat pedals, it's so key to get not just the right shoes, but the right pedals as well. And there's a lot of good pedals out there and there's a lot of good shoes out there. It used to just be 510, ruling the roost. But with the likes of Bontrager, um, Specialized, Liat, um, yeah, there's, there's a number of them right concepts as well there's a number of options out there so i reckon the, the advice there would be head to bikeradar.com and search for the best flat pedal shoes well there you go exactly so we've got plenty Tons in of terms reviews. of pedal group tests and best lists and shoe yeah the equivalent in shoes so it's all on there so yeah get stuck in and and finally uh brakes is another good one if you're keen on riding fast the better your brakes are generally the easier it is 
another podcast in itself. <laughs> so, <laughs> there is a whole podcast in that. So maybe we should just move on. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, if you are looking for sort of, as I said with the shoes, you know, Bike Radar's got huge sort of buyers list, you know, the best X, Y, Z, and that's all pulled from the tests that we run in our magazines and on Bike Radar. So, you know, if it, those are areas where, you know, we can recommend it based on price and performance, um, and you can find them all listed in there. So, yeah, so what, coaching, suspension tuning, shoes, pedals, grips, and brakes are probably the key areas that you might want to look at. And, you know, that's priced everything from like 20 quid for a grip up to a couple of hundred for a brake. But within that sort of mid price, those are the bits that, you know, you reckon are probably going to make the most difference on a mid-level bike, which maybe some of those areas will have been compromised in the build of the bike. Yeah, I mean, even little things, back to the suspension tuning thing, for example, even just getting your forks serviced, potentially upgrading the lubrication in there, the seals, things like that, you know, sticking in a lower friction set of seals, for example, could potentially make them more sensitive and, you know, just go to boost traction. So it doesn't, you don't have to spend the earth in order to get those performance gains. It's just, you know, that those were just examples of things we think you should potentially focus on. Wicked. All right. Um, Warren, a lot of um, roads, you know, when you watch the Tour de France, quite often you see bikes with slightly odd looking derailleurs. Um, and there's companies such as like Ceramic Speed who will sell for many hundreds of pounds um, jockey wheels with a couple more extra teeth on there. So what is the point um, in these oversized jockey wheels that people keep? Yeah, the, the oversized pulley wheel system, I mean, we're now seeing from a whole bunch of, of different brands, um, some looking more radical than others. But Ceramic Speed were the, the originators of of that design, and they're probably the most widely tested, you know, sort of independently. Um Ceramic speed themselves claim a saving of between like two and four watts over over a stock Dura-Ace rear cage. You know, that's at like putting out 250 watts, 90 RPM, you know, sort of typical numbers. I can't, you know, two to four watts isn't a huge amount, but, you know, saving a watt, saving a watt, it's saving you energy. Um, but those savings, they come from the, you know, firstly the reduced um, friction of using ceramic bearings, but also because of the oversized jockey wheels themselves. Um, and it... That all comes down to um, less mechanical losses through um, reduced chain articulation. If you take a, um, and this is something that's you know sort of been investigated and reported on a lot, a lot, you know, large chain rings and cogs have just been proven to be more efficient, um, and so it makes sense that an oversized jockey wheel will basically be doing the same thing. So if you take a regular jockey wheel which has eleven teeth, um, for the chain to exit that jockey wheel, go into the next one and come around, it needs. 33 degrees of articulation so that's where it bends at the link each individual link has to bend that much um on an oversized jockey wheel where you're looking around 19 teeth that reduces down to 19 degrees so it's you know it's almost half that in itself creates you know is a more efficient a more efficient way of just getting that chain through the system um but also a larger jockey wheel has to spin less times per your cadence which that also means you get smoother running a quieter chain smoother shifting, and also increased longevity, I would say. And and then, especially if it's turning on like low friction ceramic bearings on top of that. Personally, you know, I run an oversized pulley system on, on my own bike, um, and I've found it's just much smoother running than it was before. Um, there's much less chain noise, shifting's a lot smoother. So I'm kind of, you know, it kind of wins me over, and I'm not really that concerned about saving a few watts, you know, um, but... All of those kind of benefits, they do come at a huge price. So I think if you're, you know, if you're a really seriously dedicated, say, time trialist or 
or tried, you know, rider or whatever, and you're just looking to get those those many, many, you know, marginal gains from all different areas, then don't overlook, you know, making your drivetrain as efficient as possible. Cool. And so on that sort of uh, drivetrain front was, um, what are your thoughts on running mullet drivetrains for climbs uh, and elevation fondos like the triple bypass? So I'm guessing this like super climb heavy long rides um yeah what are your thoughts on a mullet drivetrain do you want to sort of quickly tell us what what is meant by a mullet drivetrain and then what well, are your thoughts yeah on I, you know i guess in this instance it's talking about um yeah, it's something that's usually found on gravel where you know you you mix a, a super wide mountain bike cassette and, and rear mech with a you know more standard kind of road setup at the front i would say yeah why not you know i mean I, I, and i don't see that being a problem especially now you know with with sram coming on board with with the new explore stuff you've kind of got this not quite as extreme as going like a 1050 or you know they've they've got the explore cassette at 1044 um and what is really really nice about that new new access explore system is those key gears which you spend most of your time in that middle of the block they've still managed to maintain those one tooth gaps so when you're riding on kind of rolling stuff or downhill or whatever you still feel like you've got a nice progressive gear in and it's only when things get super steep you know when you're you've you've been climbing for hours and you're completely on your ass you've got a gear that will keep you going and i think there's there's always been a kind of um almost a sort of snooty thing of um some roadies looking at looking at people's rear cassettes and going you know i i get away with it you know in 11 25 well good on you you know but we're not all <laughs> you know we're not all that and i mean rob you've used um, the explore cassette as well you know i rode in today with it yeah. and i just think that that you know the fact you've got those key gears are exactly where you want them to be but then you've got this kind of this this breakout gear that's going to keep you pedaling rather than walking. Why not? Just I'm all for it. You know? From from an explore tech point of view, can you use a two by with that, or is that? Yeah, you can. You can yeah, use yeah. a two by. Yeah, with the, I mean right. you, you're you're limited on cassette size. You can't go to the big 1044, but you don't need the big 1044. You know, but yeah, there is a two by explore option, which you you know where you can get that super wide range. Anything less than a one to one gear is going to keep you pedaling up. You know the, the steepest inclines when you're completely spent. You know you're still going to keep turning the pedals rather than pushing. So we're good. Okay. Um, what well, uh, we'll go to um, oh, more of a pedal. We, we briefly touched on it, but um, cleat placement, Rob. Um, there's a guy who says he uses the same shoes uh, on his gravel bike and mountain bike. Um, should he still slam the cleats all the way back? Now I guess I. Well, uh, do you want to answer that or? Well, I mean, again, it's. it's, it's very subjective isn't it i think it's um it's very you know it's all about personal preference i mean i do i i i kind of i always put them in the most rearward position on whatever shoe because that's what i'm most used to so when i'm swapping between bikes it doesn't feel like i'm having to get reacquainted essentially yeah there's there's loads of well, if you go on the internet and type in cleat placement there's so much sort of I, almost pseudoscience around it whether it's good bad you know, whether you're going to get more power from a more forward um, position cleat. But I think I, I think the general consensus, and was probably able to help out here, but I think the general consensus is in terms of outright power delivery, it kind of doesn't really matter where the cleat is. Um, you might just reach it quicker, potentially, if you're in a more forward, uh, have a cleat further forward. But what I tend to find is as soon as I'm off road and you're stood up off the, you know, out the saddle, if your cleats are really far forward, yes, you are activating your calves more readily and, you know, potentially using them more, but equally you're going to tire them out more quickly because you're on the balls of your feet and hinging more rather than having further back and kind of reserving that 
energy a bit more. So, yeah, I'm not a massive fan of having them further forward. And, and yeah, personally, like I said, I just slam them right back. Yeah, I've noticed on sort of cross-country shoes and sort of more, I guess, gravel-orientated shoes. So I've got the new specialised recon shoes into testing at the moment, and I've noticed that the cleat channels seem to be coming a little bit further back as well. Slightly longer cleat channels these days and a bit further back in the shoe, certainly compared to like a proper traditional XC shoe from a few years ago where... You know, if you look at some of the old CD models, like their cleat channel is so far forward in the shoe that it's, it just feels a bit odd. I Similar think. with the old Northwaith ones as well, which used to be quite far, far forward. And then I think it's only the last couple of years that they've really started to bring them back, which is great for me. You know, like I said, it's uh, it means just when you're swapping between bikes or shoes, you aren't, you know, having to completely readjust. So I think in, in answer, really if you use the same shoes on your gravel bike and your mountain bike shoes are probably going to be quite cross-country orientated shoes i'd still slam them all the way back i think on on cleat position as well which is probably a little bit more critical on the road again it, i think it's like it, it's worth in this instance to getting along to a bike fitter and just being shown the kind of the median way of doing it you know the median way of like you know feeling for that knuckle on your on your big toe and actually doing your alignment from that. And then you've got basically a, a place to start. And then you, you go out and ride and you'll soon know if it's if it works for you, if it doesn't work for you. Um, and then you can start playing around with that. You know, it, it's just having a basic place to begin, you know. And I think, you know, the other thing I was on, on a on a mountain bike style shoe, you've just got so much more freedom. You've got so much more float anyway than on a, on a road shoe that it's, I think it's, uh, well, me personally, you know, when I'm riding my gravel bike, my sort of key placement is, it's less critical than if I'm on a road bike. Yeah. And I guess on a, on a gravel bike and on a mountain bike, you spend more time, your body's more mobile over the bike anyway. So maybe the, the you know, was on a road bike, you know, I did a road ride the other day and you're sat down for a hundred K nonstop. So like everything has to align real nice. Otherwise you get problems. The next question is, well, it says, is there any point in buying an expensive stem for my Enduro bike? Surely if I get the right length and the clamps do their job, they're all fairly similar. So I'll ask Rob this first, but um, maybe on the roadside, if you want to chip in down the line as well, was, is there any point in spending more than 30 quid, say, on a stem? I guess for that extra cash, you're potentially going to get a nicer finish. You know, maybe from standard forge, it's going to be then CNC'd. So it's going to look maybe a little slicker and probably weigh a bit less. Um, you might have titanium um, bolts used there again to save a bit of weight. But ultimately, um, if you were to compare the two like for like, assuming that the bar clamp and steer clamp are identical and they require the same amount of torque to put through them, in terms of performance, I can't imagine it's going to be massively noticeable. You know, I think uh, FSA do... One of their new, um, I forget which one model it is, maybe the Gradient. I think it costs about £210. If I was given the option to buy that or, I don't know, a 40 quid um, race face stem, I'd go for the cheaper race face stem. I know it's going to do the job. You know, it. you need your relatively wide bar clamp um, to spread that load. Similar, you know, you don't want to go too short on the steerer clamp because it can feel kind of noodly but if they're you know both a decent size yeah I, I think you don't need to drop much more than sort of 50 60 quid warren any difference yeah, with yeah i mean I'd, I'd pretty much concur with that you know on the on the on the road side of things things have changed so dramatically in the kind of quality on on stems i remember when i you know sort of started out testing you there were some stems out there where you could physically 
twist the bar and watch the stem turn at the same time. You know, they, they were just, but now, yeah, you know, if you're looking at, you know, take FSA, for example, with like the FSA OS 99, which is sort of a sort of mid-level model of theirs, it does everything you'd ever need. It's not, it's inexpensive. Richie do some amazing stuff at decent prices. I guess the only thing on the roadside is like, you spend a lot of time looking at your stem. <laughs> so having something quite nice and aesthetic is quite good. You know, I'm, I'm saying you, you don't need to spend more than 50 to 60 quid, but you know, my own bike's running a Zip SL Speed, which is 300 quid, I think. But it looks cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I spend a lot of time looking at it. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've got I've got a 40 quid. No, sorry, not 40 quid. I've got 40 mil Truvative Descendant stem on my bike at the minute, and I think it costs 60 quid. Right. I mean, that, yeah, that seems, yeah. Does the job. Yeah. I think I think if you're looking at, you know, upgrade paths on any bike, stem is easiest to fit, but it's probably the last consideration. Last, that's probably a good way to put it, yeah. Assuming the one you have is the right length. Yeah. Assuming the one you have is the right length, yeah, yeah. 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 The last place you should spend some cash. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> right. So in the, in the mountain bike world, Warren, uh, tyre inserts are... Uh, I don't know, a bit 50-50, like some people love them, some people hate them. Um, but we've got a question here is, um, are gravel tyre inserts worth the added weight? Does it make more sense to carry extra sealant in your tyres, some plugs with you and maybe a tube, or would you just rely on a on an insert? Again, I'm sort of I'm a bit split on this. I can understand that it would be a bit more divisive in mountain biking just because the tyres are so much tougher. But, you know, personally on, on my my own gravel bike i do run inserts now but that's just because of i think in the midst of last summer's lockdown i had a a tour tire when i was 40 miles from home uh, on the other side of Salisbury plain and um uh, with literally no other option than i walked home because the tire was torn so badly it was irreparable when i put a tube in it it was just making the split get bigger and so it was a case of oh this is going to be a bit of a trek so you know i had a four and a half hour walk home and then once you've done that you sort of think i'm going to put some inserts in these because at least i'll be able to ride it and you know the weight penalty is not huge over you know over overloading them with sealant and um, about 70 grams i, I think the, the extra security i really really like and also um the other thing with a with a lot of um a lot of gravel tires is when conditions out there are a bit sloppy you really want to run them at lower pressures but you know, when you're talking a tire around 40C, it hasn't really got the volume to be running super low. Put an insert in there, you can get away with it. You know, I mean, I, and I just, I, you know, so I tend to ride, I, you know, I'll, st- I'll still ride and I'll still have some sort of tire patch with me. And I might even chuck a tube in there. But I'm kind of thinking I'm not, you know, I'm not concerned with riding a super light bike, it doesn't matter. And it's just a, you know, it's just a bag that goes on my bike anyway. And then the other thing I'll keep in my bag is, you know, um, uh, is a little mini compressor, a little thumper mini compressor. Because then when it do get to bits that are really sloppy, if I'm you know riding in the woods or whatever, I can drop all that pressure out of tires, rely on the inserts. Then when we get to the bottom and I want to get back on tarmac, I'm not riding around on 12 psi. I get my, you know, I can get this pump out and bang on back up where they need to be. So I, I, I like the I, I like the idea of them. I like the security of them because I, you know I don't like walking. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so almost God, inconclusive but yeah i don't mind walking the dog you know it's all right for dogs with me but you know not, not pushing a bike fair enough so yeah so there for sort of the security aspect rather than um the ability to carry less stuff really is yeah yeah, yeah i just think the yeah the added security of it yeah 
Um, another very quick one, I think the answer to this one is, uh, when can I purchase the new Ultegra Di2 group set for my bike? Uh, and this person has asked both Bike Radar and Shimano. And I think the answer is... Well, to be honest, um, your, your guess is as good as mine. Um, I, I have asked Shimano and their distributors about it. But, you know, new 12-speed Ultegra Di2 looks amazing. It should have been available in stores already. Um, but we've got a global manufacturing and shipping crisis induced by COVID. You know, so everybody's way, way behind. So I just think the big delays are on the horizon. They're still going to manage. And I think we'll see Ultegra Di2 equipped 2022 bikes before we'll see Ultegra Di2 in stores to, to buy. Yeah. I think the next question, well, I don't think the next question, the next question is, um, it's a bit of a long one, but I'll try and condense it down a little bit. Um, at Cycling Plus, um, and I guess it also um, is useful for, for the mountain bike side as well. A lot of content in the magazine is focused on stock items. Um, what about considering uh, an article about custom-built items such as wheels? Um, so uh, this person has some stock wheels. but So effectively the question is, why don't we test things like custom-built wheels um, as opposed because we always do go for the standard ones? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a tricky one. I mean, over the years I've done lots of um, like custom-bike tests. But, it, but the, the real thing is that it, it's a very difficult thing to do comparative test because... I, I honestly believe that the whole point of going custom is getting something you want exactly for yourself. You know, like uh, I think the last custom feature I did was with with um, Linsky Titanium, and I, you know, I, was, I had lots and lots of conversations with them, and they were sort of like, "What do you want?" You know, these are our stock bikes, and I said, "Well, you know, effectively, I went for like effectively the gravel fork, the pro race geometry." but I wanted a back end sort of from one of their kind of Fondo bikes, which gave me a bigger tire clearance. So effectively what I wanted was a fast, aggressive all road bike. And this is, you know, this is before that became a, a thing. And I got exactly what I wanted. But the idea of that, you know, that bike was, it's something I wanted for a very specific need, for my very specific need. And that's not necessarily applicable for anybody, everybody. And it's exactly the same. We you know custom wheels is something we used to do quite a lot a long time ago. And I've bought plenty of custom wheels myself. And again, it's all about the experience of like talking to the wheel builder again, this is what I, this is where I ride. This is how I ride. This is the sort of tire I like to use. This is how much I weigh. So this is what I'm looking for. And a good wheel builder will choose the right components, the right rim, the right hub, the right spoke combination, the right number of spokes, you know, um, even the right configuration of spokes. So you get what you want. But again, I'm not sure how applicable that is to a lot of other readers out there. You know, if they're reading the test where I've gone, right, I'm 92 kilos, I ride this sort of terrain, I like this, and I want it to go on this bike, and you've made this, and it's exactly what I asked for. It's great. How many other people are going to have those exact same parameters? We'd almost be better off doing reviews on how they service the customer. You yeah, know? yeah. I mean, I think that's the thing. I think, you know, half, half the – most people don't need a custom bike. But when you get really good custom bike service, and, you know, I think if you look at the, you know, the, the feature on my garage on Bike Radar, you see there's a few custom bikes in there that, that I've, I've had over the years. And they're not necessarily the best bikes I own. They, they hold a kind of special place. You know, like the Linsky, the experience of, of going through that and the conversations and the to and fro and the, you know, it being felt like you were being tailored to was amazing. And I had exactly the same experience when um, uh, years and years ago, I had the Parley made for me. It was all about talking to the people that are actually going to put that bike together, basically just shooting the shit about stuff. And so again, what do you like? I like this. I like that. I like that. Oh, what about this? What sort of bikes do you like? What sort of geometry do you like? And having that, all that thing. And then when it arrives, 
and it lives up to your expectations. You just go, this is amazing. Is it technically the best bike I own? No, not by a long way. But it's the experience of, of, of having something that almost nobody else has. Yeah. And I'm not sure how well that translates into a comparative test. Look what I've got. You can't have exactly this, but you can get something comparable to it. But I, you know, I'm a big fan of the whole, you know, the whole whole custom element of things. But I do think it's about it's just about having something like beautiful and bespoke, yeah. and, and you know, and and you just feel you know you feel that great ownership of it. And that's where these little brands with amazing customer service and that experience, like you said, really stand out against the likes of you know the the direct sales stuff, which yeah. is. Well, obviously, they're doing everything they can, but it's still faceless, essentially. So, yeah, again, it's one of those things. It's almost like we need to rate the the brands rather than the products they're kind of... And I think if you go to, you know, if you go to the, like, the shows like, you know, Bespoke or the, you know, NAMS or whatever, and you talk to the to the to the to those small brands, and they, you know, nine times out of ten, they'll go, oh, here comes Joe or whatever. He's on his, like, seventh or eighth bike from me. And that's... That's it. That's, you know, because you go through that experience and it, it becomes less of a customer-seller interaction. You almost become like friends. And then it becomes a, a more sociable relationship. So, of course, you're going to go back there if you've been treated really well. And, you you know, you're feeling like you're really being looked after. Of course, you're going to return. It's exactly the same as, you know, when you find a good bike shop. You're not going to, you know, you're not going to go down the road just because they're, you know, they're selling sealant 50p cheaper. You're going to keep going to those guys because you feel like you're being, you know, looked after. Okay. Um, we'll do one last mountain bike question. And that is, can you explain the new, and this this could this could be a podcast. <laughs> We're not going to do a whole podcast. I'll do it real this. quick. This is a big... I'll fire through them. <laughs> <laughs> this is potentially a massive question. Um, so we'll, we'll rattle through this in a very bare bones, just sort of give you a taste. So maybe you can explore it yourself a little bit. Um, can you explain the new casing offerings from Shrawby? And what the equivalent is in Maxis's range. So, tire names on the side of a tire can get you know incredibly long because they go through the you know the the, the tread pattern, the TPI counts, the casing types, the the amount of like gubbins within the casing itself, the the compounds, and it can get very confusing. The size and all this sort of jazz. So you can understand how people get confused. And then when because there's no unified language of between brands, it's very difficult to compare. Um, you know, uh, a, a double down Max Terra versus a Super Gravity Apex XYZ, you know. So uh, how can we do this, Rob? Good luck. Well, I mean, maybe you need a spreadsheet, Tom. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, uh, and don't forget as well, uh, when you're looking on a ma- tire manufacturer's website, you won't find every tire is made using all the different casings. You know, it, it only applies, you know, if it's a lightweight, cross-country tyre the chances are they're not going to make it with uh, you know a double down or a super gravity you're not going to get a super gravity racing ray for example exactly exactly so uh, and i mean so i've tried my best to kind of <laughs> i can I'll, I'll reel them off best i can i'm sure i've missed one or two but um the new schwalbe stuff we've got super race which is cross-country marathon style stuff so it's supple and lightweight and the equivalent would be the 120 tpi exo casing from axis Super ground, which is general trail use. Downcountry trail bikes, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. So it's something like you'd find on a Wicked World, right? Something like that. Again, the equivalent is going to be exo casing from Maxis. Um, super trail. So it's all mountain enduro. So I guess maybe not the most 
or the toughest if you were going to go and race enduro. So it wouldn't maybe give you the most in terms of peace of mind, but it should it'd be tough enough for the most part. Good on like a 130, 140 mil trail bike. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe if you're a really light rider, you know, 160, one, you know, 150, 160 sort of more enduro bike. If you want to push it a bit further, you go towards super gravity. So that's your enduro downhill, potentially, you know, a lighter weight downhill rider might use. I've used super gravity tires to ride downhill and, and they've been fine. And then Max's speak, what that's like an XO plus? So I would say super trail is probably more like XO plus. Um, I would say super gravity is more like double down. So a bit tougher. And then finally, you've got super downhill from Schwalbe, which is the equivalent of like a DH dual ply from Maxis. Where you can get really lost in the detail is in terms of what goes into those. So uh, like a super race, which we've already mentioned, will have the race guard strip, which goes directly under the tire treads to help protect, you know, punches, this, that, the other. It's got two different layups of carcass, so like a double and a triple layer. It's got a chamfer strip, which goes basically around the sort of the, the contact area where the rim um, contacts the tire to help prevent pinch punches. But generally, it's going to be pretty light. And then um, super gravity, for example, uses the snakeskin puncture protection layer, which is it wraps the entire um, tire underneath the tread. It's also got the apex protection layer, which is for the sidewall protection and it helps stabilize the tire as well. Then it's got four carcass layers in order to give a bit more stability and toughness. And then it also has what's called the chafer strip, which is another, again, round the rim tire contact. So just to add a bit more um, punch protection, you know, against pinch flats and things like that. And I mean, the downhill one, it kind of uses everything from super gravity, but then has six carcass layers right, rather okay. than just the four. And that's why it weighs 100 bit kilos. So that's, you know, that's the thing. Again, like you said, we could kind of go into. I could. I, I have actually got everything listed here. <laughs> <laughs> that would be very dull if I just reel those off. They, they are. It is quite confused. Like I get confused when, I, especially, and I don't want to like, like pick out on anyone. But Schwalbe's range is. I kind of get Maxis's range. Quite. It's quite easy to sort of get your head around. I think like you know XX plus double down DH, kind of fourth. You know, and the same with the with the compounds as well. Like was it max speed, max terror, max grip? And there are a couple of other permutations within that. And there's obviously dual compound, triple compound and stuff. It seems fairly simple, whereas I have to admit, like a fine Schwalbe's range, a little harder to navigate if you were just given the name of a tire. Yes. Yeah. I mean... They've simplified it this time around, actually, with the new like super trails, super, gra- you know, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I think it, it definitely gives you a better idea of what it's going to be aimed at. Equally, if you are a... I don't know, maybe a downhill rider, you would look and you go, oh, super race. Yeah, I want to be. Oh, no, hold on. There's a super downhill. You know, I. Yeah. but again, it's one of those things, isn't it? I think more than anything, you, when you're looking on those sites, you've probably got a good idea about which tire it is you want because you you know it because, you know, that's what it looks like. The tread pattern is really distinctive. Magic Mary, for example. And obviously they aren't going to be offered, for the most part, they're generally not offered in those less protective lighter weight um, builds, casings. So it will guide you to an extent as to what they're actually, what, what builds they come in. You kind of bracketed it in a, a certain sector yeah. of tyre build. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, 
but yeah, it's still a bit of a minefield. Um, so yeah, get onto bike radar. <laughs> <laughs> we need to very quickly write a quick guide to, to, to tie a Isn't Al, Al wants to do a whole Al, podcast on it, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah. yeah, but at the same time, if Al does that podcast, I would say the general takeaway will be put downhill tires on. cool all right warren so this is the last question uh that we're gonna do um and this one might be a bit tricky to answer without actually being there but uh, i recently got a giant tcr advanced disc i hear a strong thud sound when going over bumps at high speed from somewhere in the front end the spike has a carbon steerer but alloy stem and handlebars um and he says he has got the stem nice and tight and there's no rotation in the bars either Where's the sound coming from? Due to the recent specialised Tarmac SL7 recall, I'm a bit worried about my bike's steerer tube. Should he be worried or she, should she be worried? Um, um, what's well, the deal? Yeah, any untoward noise is obviously uh, going to be something of a concern. Especially at but, high speed. Um, it, the problem is it's not really worth you know, any of us here trying to second guess what it is. It could be something, and it sounds like something just as simple as an incorrectly preloaded headset. You know, so there's just that little bit of, you know, and it can be just a millimeter or two, you know. But almost yeah, imperceptible. Just, yeah, it, yeah. So it's almost like you, you know, it's not like you can put the brake on and feel the headset rocking. It's not even, you know. And it can, you know, resonate. You know, carbon frames do tend to kind of um, uh, amplify, you know, any untoward sounds. So best advice is, you know, get along to your local giant dealer or to your local dependable bike shop and just get them to check it out for you if you don't feel confident yourself in in preloading a headset properly. And they'll have a, a full set of knowledge on, you know, if there is, like, I mean, there isn't a recall that, is, that we're aware of, but they'll know of any problems um, and they should be yeah, very yeah, qualified yeah. just to set your mind at ease. Exactly, yeah. I mean, that's, that's the thing. It's, you know, there's nothing nothing worse than riding around thinking this might be a problem, this might not be a problem. It, it just makes sense just going to get it checked. And I guess that's the value really of having a good, you know, a good bike shop that you maybe bought, you know, create that relationship like we were talking about previously. Is That's a, a good reason to go and do it because they might even just be like, oh, we'll just nip it up for you, mate. It might be that you just need one more spacer underneath your uh Yeah, yeah, when you preloaded it. And yeah. yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, if it's if it's almost bottomed out mm-hmm. and it won't fully tighten. Tube, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It's like a lot of, you know, it, it used to be that, you know, a simple headset press was easy, but a lot of forks now don't have, you know, don't have a hole going all the way through them. You know, they've, they've, they've been, they've been molded in such a way so that a traditional headset press doesn't really work. So a nice little tip is have a slightly oversized headset space. So put it in there when you preload it or tighten everything up, then pull it out, put the normal one back on and you're kind of done. You know, you just give it that little bit, just, you know, pushing it all up together. Extra squeeze. Extra squeeze. Extra squeeze. That's a technical term for it, I think. Lovely stuff. And on that bombshell then. <laughs> um, yeah, well, thank you ever so much, uh, Rob and Warren, for, for all your tech tips. Um, hopefully that's helped um, some of our listeners and hopefully it's been interesting enough for those of you who've uh, listened all the way through. Um, and thanks ever so much for doing so. Um, do subscribe to the Bike Radar podcast as well. If you haven't, then you'll get podcasts beamed to your device every Monday and actually quite a lot of Fridays as well now because uh, we're, we're trying to do lots of little extra series um, that run concurrently on, on Fridays too. Um, I think this is, well, if this has gone down well enough, we'll do another one of these tech Q&As uh, in the next month or two. Um, so have a look on Instagram, Bike Radar's Instagram. And if you've got any questions, put them down in the comments uh, when we do our next post about it. Uh, but yeah, thanks very much, Rob. Cheers, mate. Thank you. And thank you, Warren. Thanks, Tom. And we'll catch you next Monday. Thank you for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you want any more information on what we've been talking about or more news and views on cycling, check out bikeradar.com. Bike Radar.